WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Sin's destructive character enslaves us, enslaves us. It makes slaves out of us. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that before our conversion, we were slaves to sin. Paul actually, in Romans 6.14, refers to sin as something that was our master. It reigned over us. You, you weren't free before you were converted. You thought you were, but you were not free. The sad truth is that people who reject Christ because they don't want to give up their freedom have actually chosen to remain in bondage because they never really had any freedom to begin with, at least as it relates to sin. On the other hand, we Christ followers want to avoid sin, but we always need the Lord's help because we are still vulnerable to temptation. And that's the thrust of today's study as we look at the sixth and final petition included in the Lord's Prayer. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse, a Bible class of the air. Our instructor is Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve has been exercising his teaching gifts for over 25 years at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We find ourselves today beginning the first of three parts to Pastor Steve's sixth and concluding message on this wonderful guide to prayer. We will be starting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. So here is Pastor Steve with a more complete explanation. One of my favorite songs of the faith is that well-known hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The lyrics were written in 1758 by an English Baptist pastor named Robert Robinson. And many, like myself, have fallen in love with that hymn because it contains a phrase that so accurately captures our feelings of weakness and vulnerability in facing temptation. The last line says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. I think every, every genuine Christian can understand and, and relate to those words, those penetrating words, because we understand that although Christ has transformed us so that we have a new nature that longs to obey God's word, indwelling sin, Indwelling sin makes us prone to wander far from the God we love. And, and you know what? It's interesting that no one really understood this more than the, than the author of those words, Robinson himself. Although Robinson seems to have been genuinely converted under the ministry of George Whitfield, he himself was prone to wander. And I don't want to mess up this song for you. But Robinson, the author, was a man who, towards the end of his life, was characterized, quite frankly, by a lack of spiritual stability. He was known to often lapse into sin as, as well as unsound doctrine. In fact, a story is told about him of an encounter he had while riding on a stagecoach. He met a woman who was deeply engrossed in a hymn book, and she was, as she was uh, going through that book, she was humming some of the hymns, and she came across, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, not knowing that the author was sitting across from her. And when she asked him what he thought about that hymn, 
Robinson burst into tears and said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Very sad words. But you see, like so many believers before and after him, Robert Robinson was overcome by temptation and fell into sin. But he didn't need to, nor nor do we. We don't need to succumb to sin, succumb to temptation. And to help us have victory over temptation, temptation that threatens us, Jesus gave us a prayer request, petition, and instructions in the Lord's Prayer about how to pray. And so I'd like you to open your Bibles, unless you're there already, to Matthew chapter 6. And we want to look at verse 13. This is our Lord's solution for spiritual protection from temptation. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is the sixth and it's the final prayer petition given by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. And like all the other previous petitions, this one is designed to serve as a model for us. It's an example. It's an illustration, not in the sense that we repeat it word for word, but in the sense that we understand the timeless principles contained in this prayer request and then incorporate those principles into our own prayers using our own words to fit our own unique set of circumstances. That's the point of all of these prayer petitions. Now, in order to even begin to understand the meaning of this final petition, we first need to see that by divine design, the Lord Jesus placed it immediately after the petition about God's forgiveness for our sins. It's not there by accident. As I've told you, there's, there's an order to these petitions. There's a, uh, a divine sequence so that they flow one from another. And here's how they're related. The petition for asking forgiveness and this petition are related. In verse 12, as we saw last week, Jesus uh, told us that a true child of God is concerned that he maintain his fellowship with his heavenly father. He knows that he's been forgiven judicially initially at salvation, so that all of his sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood of Christ. They're all forgiven. But in order to maintain warmth and joy in his day-by-day relationship with the Lord, he needs to ask the, the Father to forgive him for sins. This is not judicial forgiveness. This is, this is moment-by-moment fellowship forgiveness or parental forgiveness that does keep the joy and warmth in our relationship. But watch this. Having told us to ask God to forgive us for any sins we've committed, which is the fifth petition, Jesus immediately in this sixth petition tells us to also ask for God's protection from committing any more sins in the future. That's the point. In other words, a true child of God is not only concerned that God forgive the sin that he's already done, but he's also concerned that he doesn't fall into any more sin coming down the road. Now, it's obvious that this is the point that Jesus was making, because notice that the Lord connects these two petitions with the word and, A-N-D, just like he did the fourth and fifth petition. Notice that it starts in verse 13, and do not lead us. So that what he's actually saying is this, when you pray, ask God to forgive whatever sin you've committed, but don't stop there. Continue. Take it a step further. And... Ask him to protect you from falling into any more sin. In other words, forgive us our debts and lead us away 
from any temptations that might cause us to incur more debt. That's the thought here. That's the point. Now, this is a very important truth that we need to understand about the Christian life, because not only does a true child of God want God's forgiveness for his sins, but his heart's desires that he doesn't want to sin anymore. He doesn't want to. And, and, and though there is indwelling sin in him and so that he is prone to wander in the very depth of his being, he does not want to continue in sin. As one Bible teacher put it, after God has forgiven us, there is nothing we have so earnestly to pray for as that we fall not again into the same filth. See, as I, as I said, once you're converted, though we are still attracted to sin and prone to wander, we also hate our sin because we, we now understand like we never did before God's holiness, God's abhorrence towards sin, his hatred of sin. And we also understand the destructive force of sin in our own lives and in the lives of others. Wayne Mack has written an excellent book on the Lord's Prayer entitled Reaching the Ear of God. If you can get a copy, it's, it's really good. And in that book, he lists a number of reasons why we should recognize sin as, and I quote, the most awful thing in the universe. And he says this, that unless you understand that sin is the most awful thing in the universe, you'll not be one who will pray in obedience to the Lord this sixth petition. You'll not really take sin seriously enough to pray and do not, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He said, you've got to understand that it is the most awful thing in the universe. And then he lists several reasons why sin is so awful. And I'm going to give you a few of those. First of all, he says that sin is the most awful thing in the universe because sin is an abomination to God. That's what God says. He uses that word abomination, which means more than he just hates it. The thought here is that he loathes it. He despises it. That, those are, those are the concepts behind the, the word abomination. And the Old Testament is full of references to the fact that God finds certain sins, abominations to him. In fact, in Proverbs alone, God declares these are an abomination to him. He declares lying lips. It's an abomination to him. Someone who cheats. It's an abomination. Someone who has a perverse heart, makes evil plans, is proud, perverts truth, and refuses to listen to his law. All of these things God finds abominable. Secondly, second reason he gives for why sin is the most awful thing in the universe is because it is actually in its in its ultimate definition rebellion against god it is a rebellion against the almighty himself leviticus 26:40 says they committed sins against me and acted with hostility against me that's what sin is it's it's raising our puny little fisted god and being hostile towards the king of kings and lord of lords it's it's uh it's absurd it's hostility against the almighty we stretch out our hands in, in rebellion, and we, and we defy him. We ought to hate sin like that. Third reason that sin is so horrible be, is because of its destructive character in our lives. It is a force beyond any force we have ever encountered. Do you realize, for example, that sin is the cause of death? Sin is the cause of death. Paul said it is the last enemy, death is, but it came by, by sin because in Romans 5.12, speaking of the fall of, of man, when Adam fell, we fell in him, the Bible says. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Adam was our federal head. In him, we, we fell. Every time you attend the funeral 
of a loved one, it ought to give you a deeper hatred for sin. Every time you ache over the separation now, that, that a loved one has died and no longer is with you, it ought to cause you to hate sin even more because sin caused that. Not, ne- not necessarily their own personal sin that led to that, but the fall of man. Nor would there be any disease, physical pain, or sorrow in this world if it were not for sin. Note this, sin is the source of every problem and every conflict you and I have ever had with other people. It's not quirky personality defects. It's not, well, they're just like that, or I'm just like that. It's sin, because James 4.1 asks this question, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts? That's a great question. What's the bottom line, he says, to every conflict and, and quarrel you've ever had with someone? And he answers, when he says, he answers his own question, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, he's not talking about sexual lust per se. It means you desire things and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James tells us that it is always our sinful desires that make us hard to get along with. We become difficult people to have good relationships with others because of our sin. In other words, we're, it's our sinful longings that make us hard to get along with. The Bible also lists all kinds of problems that are birthed from a sinful heart. Problems such as murder, which might be just character assassination, greed, jealousy, covetousness, gossip, disobedience to authority, sexual immorality, contentiousness, drunkenness, outbursts of anger, robberies, extreme self-love, and on and on it goes. All that goes back to, to sin. Sin's destructive character also enslaves us enslaves us. It makes slaves out of us. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that before our conversion, we were slaves to sin, which I find very ironic because oftentimes when you're witnessing to an unsaved person, you'll hear something like, man, I, I can't, can't do that. I got to be free. I got to do my own thing. You're not doing your own thing. You're doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. You are a slave to sin. Paul actually in Romans 6.14 refers to sin as something that was our master. It reigned over us. You, you weren't free before you were converted. You thought you were, but you were not free. To Timothy, the apostle described unsaved man as being held captive by the devil to do his will. Now, people aren't aware of that, but that's the truth and that's reality. And to Titus, Paul described us before our conversion as being enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We, we were slaves. Slaves, no wonder Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. That's why he said, if the son shall set you free, you'll be free indeed. You'll be free, meaning that you don't have to sin now if you've been set free by by me. But sin doesn't just enslave us. Sin is the worst thing in the universe because it, it separates us from God separates us from God. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 two, God says that our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. God is so holy and so pure that the Bible says he can't even look upon sin with favor. Our sin separates us from God. He can't fellowship with us. He can't even look upon us in that sense. And therefore, Those who have never been forgiven and redeemed by Christ are separated from him. There's no relationship with him. And unless they repent and trust Christ to save him in this lifetime, 
they will remain separated from him forever, which is what the Bible calls hell. That's the punishment. Now, it's in light of this hideousness and awfulness of sin that it is an abomination to God. It is the most destructive force in our lives that Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer that those who have been converted not only are to ask God to forgive them for their sins, but they are to seek his help through prayer so that they no longer fall into the clutches of sin. In other words, though still prone to wander in the very depth of our beings, true believers, as true believers, we don't want to sin anymore. We share the same heart, the same desire that was expressed by the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he said this, do not let me wander from thy commandments. Make me walk in the path of thy commandments. Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain and establish my footsteps in thy word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. This is the heart cry of a man who says, since I've been forgiven of my sins, I don't want to continue like that. Lord, protect me. Protect me from wandering. Protect me from, from leaving you, from walking in my own ways. Now, this sixth petition that Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer is along the same lines, only he presents it in these specific words. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what precisely does the Lord mean? I think the way to unlock the meaning of this petition is to see, first of all, that there are two phrases in this last prayer request. You have a negative phrase, do not lead us into temptation, and then you have a positive phrase, but deliver us from from evil. They're really parallel phrases, though there's subtle differences. And I think the way to understand this Last petition is to look at those two key phrases, analyze them, and unlock the mystery of what they're talking about. So let's begin by by looking at the first key phrase, which is presented in, in a negative form. Do not, there's the negative, do and do not lead us into temptation. Now, immediately as we look at this phrase, we are faced with a number of interpretive challenges. In fact, in my view, This last petition is the most challenging to study and understand. And you'll see why in in just a few moments. In fact, you're going to see it now. Because the first thing you need to determine is what does Jesus mean by the word temptation? Now, you may think, what do you mean? That's that's simple. That's, That's the most you've got for us? That's simple. I understand what he means. No, no, you you may not. Because it's not that simple. You see, in the Greek language... The word that's used here, this Greek word, this word that is translated in our verse, temptation, actually has two meanings because it can be used two different ways, distinct ways. Sometimes this word, this exact word means test or trial in the sense that God tests us or he sends us a difficult trial to develop our character or to prove the genuineness of our faith. This is how it's used throughout the New Testament. In fact, this is the majority of uh, the way it's used. Let me, let me give you some examples. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, our writer speaks of this. This is a very well-known statement. James 1 verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. There's that word. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here, James uses this precise uh, word 
to say that, that we ought to rejoice when God sends us trials because these trials are designed to develop character. Character. They're not pleasant, but, but we rejoice not because they are uh, burdensome, but because the end result is good for us. First Peter says the same thing. First Peter 6 and 7. In this way, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So trials do distress us. But he says, so that here's the reason why you have these trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, God sends us tests so that it would, it would be proof to us in the way we handle these tests. And we don't turn away from the Lord. We draw closer to him. We submit to him. It proves that we're genuine Christians. Unbelievers get bitter when they have tests. But true believers, they may have some bumps in the road, but they eventually work through that. And it tests our, our faith and proves the genuineness and the reality of our faith. So in, in this sense, trials and tests are beneficial for us because God intends them for our good. He sends you a test with the intent that you would pass the test. He wants you to pass. However, the same Greek word that is uh, often used to speak of a trial or a test is also used to speak of a temptation. And a temptation is very different than a, than a trial. A temptation, by its very definition, is a solicitation from Satan to do evil. It's only evil is its intent. In other words, temptation, far from being a test sent by God with the goal of having you pass it, is an enticement by Satan, who I might add is called in Scripture the tempter, with the goal of having you fail. God wants you to pass. Satan wants you to fail. Now, we know that Satan is always the source of temptation and never God. God is the source of test, but not temptation, because the Bible specifically says that God never entices us to do evil. Where does he say that? Once again, James, James chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. I mean, that's rather clear. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God never tempts us. So it has to be Satan. And then James goes on to explain. Here's why and how Satan can tempt us. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So there's something within us called lust and indwelling sin that Satan uses to try to attract us to do evil. Then when lust has conceived, he says, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And James adds, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Let's not be deceived by temptation. Satan doesn't make us do it, but our flesh cooperates with him. And that's where he attacks us. Indeed, we are in a battle, are we not? We have three major enemies, our own sin nature, the pressure of a fallen world to conform, and the direct temptation by Satan or his representatives. It sounds pretty grim, but we can have victory over it all. The Lord offers to help us and there are things we need to do as well. Pastor Steve will deal with those topics when we return next time. We also have to finish sorting out the theological puzzle contained in the phrase, lead us not into temptation. So I do hope you can be here for our next verse by verse. 
Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff, the pastor-teacher at Lakeside Community Chapel since 1981. If you're looking for a church home or visiting Clearwater on a Sunday, Lakeside is located on Sunset Point Road in Clearwater, Florida. We're at 1893, which is midway between U.S. 19 and the beach. Our website is versebyverseradio.org. If you visit the website, you can listen again to today's lesson, download it for later listening, or sign up for our free podcasting service. That's versebyverseradio.org. If you would like to subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, there is a link for that also. To hear Pastor Steve's entire message, call us to order it. It's available on audio CD or on cassette tape. The number is 727-441-1714. Leave your name and a number, and we'll return your call during weekday office hours. That number again is 